Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Rich. Hello. And Anita. Hi. Now, this is going to be our 99th episode. And Rich, where did your mind go upon hearing this? Uh, the only time the number 99 has ever come up in pop culture is in the show Brooklyn Nine-Nine. So I thought, Probably you know come what? up in other places. No, this, We're not going to talk this, about this, this the, is the wife one. on Get Smart? Or? No, <laughs> this, this is the only time it's come up. Uh, so we're going to talk about Brooklyn Nine-Nine for uh, 60 minutes. Uh, nothing else. We, we are not going to do that, but we are going to talk about depictions of work, the working class and working class issues on television today. And Rich, I think, had the idea to start with discussion of depictions of police on television because there are so many of them. Um, Brooklyn Nine-Nine being a prominent modern example, but you don't have to look far to find any number of cop shows all across your cable box or Netflix subscription. This is a broad subject, but w- what are we going to try to say here in this segment when we talk about how the police are depicted on TV? Well, just to be clear, the police are not uh, members of the working class. They are class traders. Uh, and we've done a whole episode about uh, the police as a, a phony working class. So I just want to get that out there up front. That said, w- what attracted me to this, this show as a, as a, a theme worth exploring uh, is that Brooklyn Nine-Nine really is presented as a workplace drama uh, with kind of a, a, a cop show tacked onto it. And so – or workplace sitcom, excuse me, with, with, a, with a cop show tacked onto it. Uh, and so I was, I was sort of interested in the ideology behind this depiction of contemporary police as, you know, just people in an office uh, hanging out with their friends at work. Uh, and then also they solve crimes. Now, you you say – ideology I, I think there are a lot of people who might reflexively you know look askew at the idea that a show on NBC has ideology but I think one of the, our broader points here today is that these things do have ideology they have political content even when they are posing as apolitical or you know not even seeming to touch on what many people would consider political issues I've watched a ton of this show I actually we you know we find it funny but I mean, you always get the impression that you're watching an office show and then, oh, my God, oh, they're doing crimes. Is that what they're is, is that the thing that they do at their job? You know, it, it to me, it always seems like um, like that's the candy coating. <laughs> I mean, it really is an office show and it doesn't it doesn't accurately accurately depict anything that probably goes on in the policing world. And it certainly shies away from the actual uh, class issues that are underlying with involvement of the police. I mean, um, they rarely touch any sort of third rails like police violence or excessive force or over-policing that really just doesn't come up. You just kind of have this happy-go-lucky crowd that occasionally runs into some ideas like, I don't know, office office feminism, I want to say, or you know, the lightest form of feminism you can get into, or um, sort of this faux, you know, rainbow washing um, in 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 drama. Like, you know, the, the captain is gay, but you know, it rarely affects you know his interactions with other people, except for quote in the past. Um, it doesn't come up much as like a a sticking point for you know anything, except for when he finally goes for his commissioner's uh, you know office. There there are just so many things that just honestly have have nothing to do with policing and everything to do with the ideology ideology of faux wokeness and it it makes me uncomfortable to be honest with you yeah like if if you look at the the cast of the show it's very consciously depicted as uh racially mixed mix of genders like you said captain holt is uh you know, both a black man and a gay man. And those are keep these very open about his identity. And, you know, part of the kind of myth behind the show is, uh, that he's someone who rose through the ranks despite these two, you know, hindrances and the famously, 
uh, backwards NYPD. But, you know, now things are different. Now things are normal. Um, things are definitely normal. Things are NYPD. <laughs> yeah. oh, hey, yeah. w- one thing that struck me that I, I remember from an interview was uh, that when Stephanie Beatrice, who plays one of the uh, the police, found out that Melissa Fomero had been cast, she started crying because no show would cast two Latina women. <laughs> And then when she did get cast, you know, it was like, oh, what a, what a relief. Um, and so it, it uses that, uh, that veneer of diversity, you know, like Anita was saying to wash over, uh, some of the more disturbing facets of, of contemporary policing and make it seem like, oh, it's just a bunch of just a diverse group of people getting along, doing their best, acting in good faith, you know, not really <laughs> having much to pay, having much mind to pay with, uh, you know, the, the real oppressions for which the NYPD is daily responsible. Yeah, I, you know, the, it, it always strikes me that, you know, you couldn't take this show about police and put it in any other <clears throat> setting where it would be even remotely believable except for maybe Brooklyn because people have a, they have an immediate response to New York as being a place that's hyper diverse and has all these different kinds of people. So even watching that, you must suspend your disbelief about police in general and put it in sort of this um, <laughs> imagined area that doesn't really exist in, in Brooklyn where all these magical creatures, all these unicorns kind of line up and decided they want to be the man. <laughs> I, I find it funny, to be honest with you. I, I want to read from a bit, a bit from a, an article on Medium I came across. It's titled, uh, Is Brooklyn Nine-Nine Propaganda? Well, it certainly isn't activism. The author is Bree Rody Mantha, written in last month, December 2019. Uh, quote, Brooklyn Nine-Nine fed into the fantasy I'd internalized. It was about nice cops who spent more time goofing off and helping each other out than they did abusing their powers. Since the beginning, critics called it cop propaganda because it incorporates a relatively uncritical take on the police officers it portrays and perpetuates the idea that brutal police officers are the quote, bad eggs in a sea of good eggs. It's unclear if Dan Gore and Michael Schur, the uh, creators of the show, ever intended to make this show any type of propaganda, but does their original intent matter? As the show has responded to its growing progressive base, much of its writing reeks of overcompensation. Yeah, and I, I think actually overcompensation is a great word because one thing, you know, the diversity of it is itself not factual. So just a quote here from New York Post article, whites make up 33% of New York City's population and 54% of the NYPD. Blacks represent 23% of the city's population and 16% of the NYPD. So, I mean, representation uh, like that, you know, in police doesn't necessarily matter. But even in Brooklyn Nine-Nine, uh, it's presenting a fantasy world of, uh, you know, wh- how the demographics of the department, which are much Major, still majority white in a non-majority white city uh, actually play out. There's something about that that uh, I'm reminded of now that you say it. I mean, even in their fantasy sort of, you know, pseudo-woke way, they failed even to get off the idea of a showrunner being a white male who is coded as just, you know... Two, two white males. Yeah, oh, sorry, yeah, I guess I <laughs> I guess I kind of forgot, but it, yeah, he, it's, the 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 character of jake is portrayed as being a goofy failing upward sort of you know regular white guy until i mean later he reveals he also has jewish heritage which is factual about the actor but was not part of uh, that i could see anywhere in the first few seasons where they even mentioned him being jewish first of all so even that even their ability to diversify their cast is still just it fails when you think about they couldn't even find a, a star of the show to make that wasn't typical. And, and the way they seem to compensate for that is that cis het white men in the show are presented for the most part as kind of buffoonish. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, Boyle is Jake's best friend and he's kind of a goof. And then uh, Scully and Hitchcock are these oh, like yeah. Shakespearean clownish characters <laughs> who, frankly, the writers lean on way too much mm-hmm. uh, for humor, for being kind of like lazy and oafish and incompetent. Um, but you know, that, that, that doesn't necessarily redeem, uh, like you said, the, the, you know, the perspective, the perspective. Yeah. yeah thank it's, you. It's completely from, you know, it's Jake's world. He's living in sort of this fantasy where he gets to be super cop and nobody ever argues sort of his points. And he always turns out to be right in the end, no matter how goofy his, you know, 
uh, ways of getting around it are. I mean, <laughs> he, he gets the girl, he, you know, everything works out for him. Uh, it just seems very same. I, I, I do want to broaden our, our discussion beyond just Brooklyn Nine-Nine, though I'm sure you two could talk about it for a no, long time. But, no. but there, there's so much <laughs> policing on TV. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about, you know, this having ideological content, that's not just an overly cynical look at it. That's because there's a long history of these sorts of shows being used to push agendas. Um, there's an article on uh, timeline.com about uh, Dragnet, which is one of the early, wow, yeah, earliest top shows on, on television in uh, the 50s and 60s. And it ended up in syndication for Start, much longer. Started off on radio, too, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. Um, quote, when we see a cop on TV, we're seeing the legacy of Dragnet. Everything we think we know about crime and law enforcement and everything we believe about the police bears the imprint of the show. It did no less than fashion the idea of modern policing in our cultural imagination. And as viewers were reminded each week, all of it was true. But what most of us don't know is that Dragnet was also calculated propaganda. The Los Angeles Police Department did far more than provide technical assistance, essentially co-producing the show. And... We see this also in movies with there's a whole industry of movies that take uh, assistance from government agencies with regards to the military. But, you know, these institutions have an interest in fostering a better public image for themselves. And they have long seen TV and movie and pop culture as a way to do that. Well, I I can actually keep it on Brooklyn Nine-Nine for a nice illustration of that. So there was a a very special episode of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Uh, where sar- the sergeant Terry Crews, uh, he's wearing civilian clothes and he's walking around his neighborhood oh, yeah, at night yeah. and he gets accosted by a white police officer, uh, and is treated like most white police officers typically treat people of color, which is to say harshly, uh, but only when, uh, the police, the white police officer realizes that, uh, Sergeant Jeffords is, oh, oh, you're a cop. And then he re- kind of backs away. Um, and so the kind of, the conflict of the episode is how Jeffords should respond. Uh, you know, should he make a complaint? Should he sue the department? You know, what should he do? And there's kind of, there's a heart to heart moment between Jeffords and, uh, Captain Holt where Captain Holt tells him basically, you know, do what I did, you know, keep your head down, work within the institution, change things from inside. And I think it's that episode that most clearly displays the ideology of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. It's this very liberal mindset that institutions can be changed by well-meaning uh, people. Uh, they're not, uh, <clears throat> you know, they're not uh, things maintained by larger structures. Uh, they can be reformed uh, from within and, you know, every example we know of, you know, any police department has shown that that's just a lie, even as police departments become diverse, even as they become, uh, in some senses, more accountable, they still serve the basic role of maintaining white supremacy, of maintaining class hierarchy. Um, you know, it, it just, you know, like Anita said earlier, is a rainbow wash of uh, the, the actual purpose of contemporary police in the United States. Yeah, I mean, they're mainly just there to protect property of the, you know, upper class uh, from basically any kind of backlash that uh, the working class or people who are the working poor um, might have. I mean, we're talking about the kind of people that will arrest somebody for stealing food for their family. Um, you know, it's disgusting, but there's... It, is is that the only way to deal with that? No, of course not. But the police are called in, and you know they're they're there to break up protests. They're there to crack heads. They're not there to serve and protect. And we kind of know that. So that when this show, you know, bemoans the problem of the hierarchy inherent in in the system for policing, um, it it just rings hollow because we know that. A guy like Captain Holt so rarely would ever exist. And even if he does exist in that world, it's kind of his own fault for going along with this crap. Right. It's hard to imagine a career of Captain or yeah, Captain Holt's career climbing the ladder without him doing things like 
uh, ordering his officers to conduct stop and frisk yeah. or ordering his officers to, you know, break up demonstrations because if you refuse to do those things, his career would have ended. Uh, yeah. But, you know, that that part of the story is is between the lines, not not to mention, not to talk about. It's the uplifting story of a gay black man rising through the ranks and attaining power. Now, I can see where some listeners might be rolling their eyes and viewing this sort of criticism as we might be reading too much into these things. But this line of criticism <laughs> about uh, police television isn't anything new. Um, to continue from that article on Dragnet, it's uh, by Jackie Shine. Um, quote, as one reviewer noted in 1954, quote, the U.S. completely forgets that it is a nation of incipient cop haters when its eyes are glued on Webb's shell. The department further blurred the lines between Friday's world and their own by treating the entertainer Webb like an actual cop. One year, Webb interviewed officer candidates on a civilian panel. The show and the department worked together to, you know, the, these things have real effects is what we're saying. It's, it's, you can sort of shut off your brain and not think about it, but. These, these shows create an atmosphere where people think uh, police, first of all, are basically competent, basically well-meaning. And what they do is solve crimes like, oh, you know, the, the bad robber, you know, was stealing purses or there's a drug organization and only Jake Peralta can infiltrate it and take <laughs> it down from within. When what we actually know is. Most crimes go unsolved. Uh, you know, clearance rates across the nation are, you know, around 10%. If you report a crime that happens to you, nothing's going to happen. I'm sorry to say, uh, because that's not the job of police. Uh, but these shows very much presented as, oh, they're out there, you know, this very difficult job, very hard work or just a sidebar, not even the most top 10 most dangerous job in the United States. Uh, that honor belongs to, you know, fishers and yeah, lumber deep people. Yeah, deep sea crab fishermen. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Our heroes. You, but, you know, if you see, if you watch these shows, you would have a sense of them that's much different than the reality. And, you know, just to build off Ryan's point, that is the point. That's what they're trying to present to you as an altered understanding of how things are. We've spent a lot of time talking about uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and that's in part because of the, the fun number thing and because, you know, there's a familiarity there. But I think it's likely that it's not even the worst offender in these of, you know, cop shows on television in terms of portraying a, you know, do good cop force opposed to, you know, the criminals that are, the weekly criminals who, you know, yeah. do wrong. Um, have you, either of you seen a show called Bosch? No. I, I've seen previews for it, but no, I've never actually it, seen it. It's on Amazon. It's based on a series of books by Michael Connolly. Um, and it is, I've watched all of it. And, but in the back of my mind, I'm like, this, you know, there's something almost sinister to it because each season has like as an underlying plot point the idea that the police force is the good guys here. You know, it it, mm. it might, it's probably more subtle than a lot of shows of the past. But to give an example of one storyline, there was um, one season starts with the idea that police kill a civil rights lawyer because he was about to break open a case <coughs> of, you know, police brutality. And in the end, it's an unrelated serial killer who who did it. The main character is uh, Harry Bosch, and he is very much a hard-nosed cop. The, the show starts with him like being fined one dollar for a wrongful death, which it sounds like the most realistic thing about it. Yeah. So, I, 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 but but he's the good guy on the show, despite it's crazy every attempt to play him as this edgy anti-hero character. Yeah. It so reminds me of like the Dirty Harry sort of situation mm -hmm. where it's just a it's just this regressive uh, um, I hate to keep saying but like white male power fantasy of get back at X Y Z and if you're a sane person you know you know that first of all um, you know this character of a rogue cop who has to do the right thing no matter what even though his department is either bogging him down with paperwork or, you know, the bad guy is just so inherently evil that he can't even see a trial, you know, I, I, that character needs to die and go away because I've seen it so many times, A, and B, um, even though that's, in my opinion, more of a, <laughs> the, the, the random killing aspect seems more in line with what I understand to be actual police policing however just the idea that that person needs to exist in order to justify 
having an over-policed uh, country as we do, it, it just it keeps perpetuating that idea that that's necessary somehow, and I find it gross. Well, you talk about Dirty Harry. There's a whole line of movies, especially in the 70s and 80s, that played into this idea that our police were hamstrung by all these, you know, rules about what they could and could not do. And I don't see any you know, of that. If we, if we just freed them up to, you know you know, take the law into their own hands effectively, we could rid the streets of all this crime that was rampant at the time. And, you know, and that's an attitude that, you know, seeped into everyone's mind, because just to take an example, we have a president whose his whole mindset about like, what American cities look like is based on the movies of the 70s and 80s, in terms of like, depicting American cities as crime infested, you know, places that needed a tough, strong police force to handle them. It was like Judge Dredd or something like that, you know? I mean, yeah. you guys have seen that? Yes. It's a little older, obviously, of a reference, but I think it tracks. I mean... Th- there, were, there was a recent one, too, that came out uh, that remade it. Uh, yeah, it, was set in, like, it was set in like a post-apocalyptic hellscape future where... Uh, you know, these towers. A lot of control- cool special effects. Though. A lot of cool. It, it, yeah, was, I mean, it was a fun I watch. mean, that's the thing is like, we, we enjoy these shows, <laughs> yeah. but we're also watching them critically. I, I don't know. I stopped watching Brooklyn Nine-Nine, but not because it was copaganda because I stopped finding it funny. Uh, but you know, even as I was watching it, I was like, ah, oh, you, know. you can see the jokes coming a lot of the time. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you're, you kind of, you can't get a good belly yeah. laugh out of it. Like the first few seasons I thought were pretty funny, but I mean, like now we just watch it because it's like, what are we going to watch when we eat, you know? Yeah. <laughs> are either of you familiar with the uh, CSI effect? Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, the idea that um, because of the popularity of the show CSI, real-life juries now have a higher expectation when it comes to what cops are able to prove because right. on the show CSI, uh, you know, it's based on crime scene investigations and they always end up finding this one piece of forensic evidence or DNA that – you know, proves without a doubt that this person did it and we don't need to investigate that any further. Um, and real life is often much messier than that. And, but in, in, in most forensics, you know, I don't know if we're going off too on a tangent here, mostly they're just pseudoscience. Like, th- there is that. Yes. Yeah. I mean, on top of everything else, like they expect like these, these pure scientific answers uh, that the CSI effect guarantees, but most of them are nonsense. Uh, off the top of my head, like uh, ballistic science, nonsense, fingerprints, less nonsense, but still, you know, the matches are never quite as clear as police want to pretend they are. Uh, bite marks, famously, not a thing, uh, but used to convict hundreds, thousands of people, uh, you know, sometimes put on death row for this, you know, shoddy evidence. Um, Texas famously executed a man, infamously executed a man based on uh fire science that's utter nonsense um but you know you wouldn't see that on csi there you see it's all clean all very assured uh and all you know wraps up nicely at the end of the episode yeah it um that actually sort of leads us into the fact that this would just be another sort of magic wand tool to convict whoever they want i mean like Show me the crime. What is it? Show me the man. I'll show you the crime. Yeah. Essentially, um, so it's, it's it's it can be dangerous to give a tool like that kind of that propaganda tool to an organization with so many flaws that essentially is. I'm sorry, but it's just there to be a monopoly of power, but monopoly of force for the state. So um, if they were if they were doing community policing, it would be different. But this cannot be trusted. And don't get me started about the FBI. There, there's a line in that story about uh, Dragnet from like the review in 1954, you know, describing America as a nation of incipient cop haters, which I don't think anybody would describe America that way today. And that's in large part, I think you can say because of you know, five decades, six or seven now of this sort of depiction of policing and pop culture. Every other show on TV is a cop show. Right. One of the most popular shows on TV, horrifyingly, is a show called Live PD, which I think we talked about on here. Oh, uh, I, maybe not. I haven't. Uh, all right. Well, it, it's the show where uh, I, I don't know if it's on every night, but when it's on, uh, it's sort of like cops except live. Um, and so yeah. hence the name, hence yeah. the name. So the, the, the host kind of pulls you into police as they raid houses or, you know, interview suspects. Uh, it's all very, very creepy and gross. And uh, the fact that it's popular at all, I think is only possible because 
uh, of this this kind of ecosystem where the cop shows present policing as uh, exciting, kind of dangerous, but definitely for the good of the community rather than uh, what it actually is, which is boring uh, and actively harmful to marginalized peoples in this country. Well, in the 70s, we have to remember that, that if you wanted to be part of a protest against Vietnam or whatever, you had to actually go down there and face off against police. You had to actually see them doing their violence against people you knew. So you knew that they were cracking down on the drugs in the community, but they were really just cracking down on people you knew. So it, it wasn't this, it wasn't this sort of, um, removed, uh, situation where you only see cops on TV. As, listen, if you're a white person, you can do whatever the hell you want in this country and not see a cop unless you're somehow either doing drugs, doing so many drugs that they catch you. Sorry. Or they, or you're basically helping out the community in some way that makes you a target, like doing a protest or making a spectacle of, of some sort of, uh, crime that's already going on underlying. Okay. Then they'll come after you. You have to be, you have to be in serious violation of quote norms in order to get even noticed. But if you're black, you interact with the cops more often. That's just a fact, you know? So the fact that we're now so removed from it and we are not a quote nation of rampant cop haters or whatever anymore is because we, we now do not come out of our homes. Um, I, I want to close this segment a bit with um, a bit from this article in Vice. It's by uh, Funke Joseph. Um, quote, I do genuinely think that there can be good shows about law enforcement, but those shows need to actively engage with what cops actually are. They can't be mindless glorification or else they become copaganda like Netflix's Bright, Blue Buds, or Chicago PD, pieces of media that are so scarily disconnected from the reality of cops that they end up serving as offbeat recruitment ads. A crime show not analyzing the broken systems in place or the potential for abuse of power and corruption within the police force is ridiculously irresponsible. When a modern-day show about crime doesn't talk about the relevant social issues, it fails as a crime show. So, so basically The Wire and nothing else. And, you know, they're not to say The Wire was perfect. but It wasn't, but it does. It sounds like he's describing The Wire uh, no. and, and the kind of balance of uh, depictions and, you know, clear sighted depiction of the police and what they actually do versus what they, they wish they did. But that's not something that you're going to see on CBS, oh, sure. even if CBS was run by more progressive minded oh, people. God. Oh. Yeah. Um, Orange is the New Black had, um, some cop interaction. It was, is mainly about the prison system. <clears throat> but, um, if you watch through that, you, I think you get a more accurate sort of, I mean, it's it's all condensed, so they give you a very obvious you know character arcs of what's happening, but there's corruption, there's crime, there's drugs being smuggled in and out of prison, and and these are all law enforcement officers that are facilitating that. Everyone's on the take, you know what I mean? That might necess not necessarily be happening supposedly with every within every police department, or sorry, with every cop, but definitely within every police department. I mean, there's not there, there's no way you can convince me otherwise. They wouldn't function without the ability to have this back and forth with criminals, supposedly. Now, um, after this break, we're going to come back and we're going to talk more broadly about depictions of work and the working class on television. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Rich. Still here. And Anita. Hi there. We talked in the first segment about uh, the pictures of police on television and where they go wrong and why they go wrong with the idea that, you know, of the police as this sort of squeaky clean organization or you know, ones whose flaws are can't be overcome with a few laughs. Um, and we, we could have gone on for much longer. There are a whole bunch of shows that we meant to talk about that we didn't. But we're going to broaden the topic on this segment of the show into talking about uh, more you know, depictions of work and the working class on television. And, you know, 
do we see shows actually tackling working class issues or working class people? You know, oftentimes I think of like, what is what is the nuclear family on TV doing with their off screen time? And, you know, it's like um, the mom is either a homemaker or she has some menial job that doesn't really it doesn't really pay a lot or it's her fantasy job where she just has her sort of it's almost like a side project and then the father has some sort of work a day job where he's just you know he, he gets by but there are a couple of shows that m do kind of show at least some struggling and i think we discussed this a little um that was roseanne at the time uh early simpsons and uh you know, a few others that actually had, hey, we're not going to make the bills or we're not going to be able to, you know, I need a new job or a better job, I'm fighting for a promotion, et cetera. Um, there's sort of a running trope of sitcom characters living in apartments or houses that are much larger than their stated jobs would ever be able to afford. <laughs> yeah. uh, Friends is famous for this. But you talked about, you know, the nuclear family of a working dad and a stay-at-home mom. And they always seem to have a pretty lavish house. Yeah. And, you know, some of that is just, you know, these are shows from a past time where, you know, families could get by better on one income. But you're not seeing necessarily the reality of what it means to be a one-income family on television. Yeah, and just, just thinking, like, The Simpsons it – it was sort of consciously setting out to lampoon uh, that old style of, of TV show uh, with, you know, the, the stay at home mom and, uh, you know, the work away, work away father. But in those early seasons, you know, even though they did have a nice house that got some, gets made fun of in a, a future episode where the real working class guy, Frank Grimes, shows up and points out how absurd this all is, uh, you know, they did struggle to make ends meet. Uh, I remember there's an episode in season two where Burns sells the plant. Um, and Marge thinks, uh, Homer's, you have to get a big bonus. Um, and what she says is we can finally have a savings account. <laughs> uh, you know, so it, it just points, you know, they've been scratching by with, you know, what, what, what Homer's been able to earn at the, uh, the nuclear power plant. Obviously, you know, the Simpsons, you know, tragically canceled in 2000, but, uh, you know, it, it kind of strayed away from its, its working. <laughs> well, again it, it's straight away from its Harvard writers Im imagination of working class issues. Uh, as, as the, the show kind of went on. Um, but other shows to kind of fill the void, like Roseanne, for instance, I think is one of the first to really depict, uh, a, a household where both mother and father had to work full-time jobs outside. Uh, just thinking in the nineties, Grace Under Fire, um, she worked in a power plant, I think, or maybe, hmm. I don't remember, but she was a single mother raising a family and working full-time. And then Malcolm in the Middle, same thing. You have two working parents. Uh, you know, struggling to make ends meet while they're, you know, putting their kids through school. Um, and the, I think the running theme here is these shows were all from like 15 or more years ago. 20. Uh, 20. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. God, uh, so much time now. Uh, you don't really see these kinds of, uh, depictions in the show anymore is, uh, I don't know if I have a good explanation. It's, it's just not something that gets represented. I think you have a, a couple like archetypal, like sitcoms. There's, a show that takes place entirely in the home and what the people actually do for a living is rarely, if ever, mentioned. Or you have the workplace comedy, which even then, work isn't necessarily the source of the tension or the comedy. Um, the Office is obviously a famous example of a workplace comedy, but doesn't necessarily deal with pay or the sorts of things that matter, I guess. It's a comedy. I mean, in the early seasons, there is kind of this dread looming because there's talk they might close the Scranton office and what that would mean for the workers. Uh, but for the most part, it's kind of a send up of like uh, office HR culture. Like what would an office be like if a boss, you know, broke every rule in the HR handbook? Wouldn't uh, that be zany? Yeah. I mean, that kind of makes me think of the IT crowd, but that was a British, it was a, more of a British comedy. Mm -hmm. um, and everyone there, except for the two IT guys, was basically always just failing upward and into jobs that they just couldn't handle. Um, and it just kind of makes it seem like very unreal, <laughs> unrealistic that anyone would actually just not get fired for not knowing what the heck they're doing. You'd be surprised. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I guess. It is true. There are plenty of... <laughs> know nothings that end up getting into management. 
You should it, meet my boss. <laughs> everyone deserves comfort, even the very base. Mm. Um, <laughs> but uh, j- just as an aside, uh, The Office, I think one of its head writers, Michael Schur, was also responsible for Brooklyn Nine-Nine, uh, Parks There's and Rec, guy. is another right. one mm. of his works. Yeah, sh- oh, that's a sh- perfect Schur has kind of made yeah. himself uh, the kind of sitcom, uh, I don't know the word, maven, I guess. Uh, and all, all of his sitcoms since... Uh, the office have been, you know, in, in their way, workplace drama. So Parks and Rec, uh, the good place. And it's like, you know, it, yeah. Michael and, you know, the angels it's and demons are, are working, place. are working in an office. It's, mm. you know, a cosmic office, but it's still at the end of the day, an office. Um, and then, you know, of course, Brooklyn Nine Nine, we've already talked about. Um, but what, what unifies them all, and interestingly, is that, that, again, that very liberal notion that, you know, diverse people, well meaning, working together, can change things for the better. You see it in Parks and Rec. You see it in The Good Place. Parks and Rec, especially that's Rec's, a very yeah. political right. Show. Yeah. It's, it's like not. That. Yeah, it's not even implicit in Parks and Rec. That is, that is the kind of the theme of the show. But it's it's kind of what unifies. Has an age goal. Not great. No. Yeah, and then I mean, like if you can pretty much, if if you had Amy Santiago from Nine Nine in the same room as Leslie Nope, um, they'd be instant best friends. The weird organizing obsessed characters who are. Um, you know, quote, good at their jobs and, you know, good at getting everybody together. You know, I know those kind of women, they're not, they're not happy. You know, if you've worked in an office atmosphere with somebody that's that quote perky person, what they're really doing is they're sniping at you behind your back so that they can move up this uh, ladder and get a couple, you know, a dollar more or whatever. It's, it's, um, it's part of the whole atomization, um, you know, problem that we have where people are not working together as, as a workforce or, you know, unionizing. They're just, they're cutting each other's throats, you know, behind the scenes so that they can just please this boss and maybe not be fired in the next round of, uh, you know, downsizing. Can you think of like even any like strikes on television besides like the television writer strike? <laughs> oh, but man, like, that's hard. you don't, there might be an episode at best on each show about, you know, the potential for a strike that inevitably gets solved within the half hour. Bojack right. Horseman comes to mind. The last That's season. true. Yeah. That's, yeah I think that's a, a kind of rare exception. Uh, the writers really depicting uh, Hollywood shutting down because the, uh, the the support staff all go on strike. Yeah. Uh, and their their simple demands are uh, not to be mistreated anymore. And the Hollywood executives are like, well, what am I going to do if I can't yell at my APA? Yeah. Um, the Simpsons has a strike episode uh, again, pretty early in the run. Um, Frazier does. I didn't know Frazier does. Wow, <laughs> that's a, yeah, who, who goes on strike? About... The radio station. Yeah, yeah, oh, that's funny. And, and it gets solved because Frazier ends up in a romantic relationship with his boss, which is a different. That, that's we're not going to go there. That, that's very funny. <laughs> Peaky um, Blinders. Uh, there was a strike, and uh, or there's going to be a strike, and then he Tommy gets with the uh, the leader of the <laughs> of the communists, yeah. uh, and <laughs> ruins that for them. <laughs> And uh, the office, uh, there's an there's an episode. That it never really explores the upstairs downstairs thing all that much because there's an office where the white collar workers are, and then the warehouse is downstairs where the blue collar workers ship the paper. Uh, and it's it's played up for laughs a little bit, but there is an episode where uh, the warehouse workers decide to form a union and you know strike for better wages, and then Jan. Uh, the Dunder Mifflin executive stomps downstairs and just sternly reminds them that the second they unionize, they're going to shut down the warehouse and move all uh, shipments to other other plants. And that that immediately puts an end to, you know, what's happening. And it's really what, what's striking me to me about that now still uh, is how neutral it's presented as like Jan's just presenting in the facts, the way things are. There's yeah. no moral real judgment of it there's no presentation of jan as especially villainous this is no alternative right yeah there's no alternative perfect way of thinking about it yeah yeah all those people lost out on whatever it is that they were arguing for i mean i i don't know the episode but basically you're thinking about well maybe it was their livelihood maybe it was a working condition i've worked in places where you have to decide whether you want to eat or whether you want to go to the bathroom because it's too far away to do both on your half hour break it, it, it's kind of played as a joke that the warehouse is unsafe, uh, in large part because Michael, the, the boss played by Steve Carell, makes it unsafe. Um, that, that's very funny. Well, well, that's Hilarious. A, a whole show that, like you said, it 
it relies on the idea that wouldn't it be funny if this guy just broke all the rules? Right. Including the safety regulations, which, you know, hilarious for all the maimed workers in history. And and the people responsible for like enforcing those rules are portrayed as scolds and unfunny. Right. Yeah. you're, You're not supposed to sympathize with them. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, you, I think you rem- you reminded me of something when you brought up uh, the Frank Grimes episode of The Simpsons. I saw an excellent YouTube uh, renegade cut about that, um, about how he's basically a class trader and a, and a work martyr because <laughs> because his his entire thing is about how he's owed something right. by doing all this extra you know extra work and the right work, and he sees a guy like Homer as being the antithesis of that and he just can't stand it to the point where as soon as he tries to break the rules he ends up uh well you know spoiler alert dead <laughs> grant grimes would have been if had had he lived had he survived the episode would have been like the uh the, the janice versus AFSME guy he would have been the case they brought <laughs> against the uh the springfield nuclear power plant absolutely union. just to think about uh Another sort of trope for these sorts of shows is like the episode where the stay-at-home mom tries to find a job. Oh God! Mm. And, yeah, and how that's portrayed. Um, you know, obviously, like even twenty, thirty years ago was a very different time for women entering the workforce compared to now, where it's pretty much expected for all women to do so. Marge becomes a cop. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Marge does become a cop. There's an episode where, uh, and Lisa, Lisa has that great line in that episode about, uh, I'm going to butcher it. Just cut it. No, oh, it's all right. We're, you know, nobody expects us to be Simpsons aficionado. We don't no, have people to know expect everything. me to know. Okay. All right, we will not embarrass you then. <laughs> um, but you know, these sorts of at, at times, these sorts of concerns about you know the the women's ambitions, like professionally or career wise, are often portrayed on TV as many times in real life as sort of not their purpose in a way like you know shouldn't you be at home with the children also oh i i'm so bored uh everything's working like a top here at home i i just wish that i had something to do maybe i'll go get a career it's almost yeah. that's preposterous frivolous yeah it's like oh a, a woman is is choosing to go out into the workforce how how interesting instead of uh i can't pay the bills which is what the norm is right that's normally why you see mm-hmm. you know dual earning households because they need them the money to make things work but you know in, in the fantasy land of tv which we all know is a fantasy land but still nevertheless we're reflects not, we're not our, our say, wants and desires say that these shows are necessarily nefarious but the sort of writers behind them tend to come from a certain perspective and there might be a reason why working class issues and working class views aren't necessarily as represented on shows like this the, the reason these shows make it through the screening process of pilots and executives watching them and uh, people actually watching them is because uh, they present a kind of ideologically comfortable vision of the world. If they were at all challenging uh, or dissenting or radical, for the most part, they just wouldn't make the cut. Or, or they'd be shunned to you know a cable network that doesn't necessarily need as large a demographic right. to watch. And even then I was thinking about some of the prestige shows that have been popular, like Mad Men or Halt and Catch Fire. Huh. And they're about yeah. the bosses. You know, these shows are about management. They're not really, they're not about the workers at all. Uh, they don't, they don't really dip their fingers into that world. Yeah. I mean, do we even ask ourselves like on modern family, what's everybody's job? What are they doing? Okay. Well, the, the dad owns a business and the, daughter works at the dad's business and he has a trophy wife and i don't think she even has a job she's you know so okay forget you, you that might find more owners on tv than workers <laughs> yeah that's true exactly yeah. everybody's got their own from the uh, actual <laughs> it's, proportions it's ridiculous like uh, i think and and one of the things that we'd brought up is anybody who's struggling on tv to find the right work or keep a job is always depicted as being a goofball sort of failure and it's entirely understandable why they can't find a job it's it's not you know yeah. the economy it's not uh you know there's not enough jobs for everybody it's the fact it is definitely their fault yeah um even the da- i mean even the dad on i just mentioned modern family he's kind of a goof and he's always like on the edge of like either losing his reality job or he's moving from thing you know job to job and it's it's ridiculous. It's just, uh, George from Seinfeld is a perfect example of that too. 
people are like, okay, he's, Spe- he's speaking of a show about people who don't visibly work yeah, in New what, York. <laughs> what do they do? How does they, oh, uh, George, George, the George works for the Yankees. I'm sorry. Elaine works sort for, uh, what's his name? Oh, I can't remember. Yeah. Mr. Yeah. Well, it was Mr. Pitt. And then later on, she worked for, um, the other guy who's, uh, the, oh, the magazine. Yeah. And I can't remember his name either. And everybody's cringing and I'm sorry. <laughs> um, just, you brought up the idea of prestige t- TV, which is this genre of TV that is meant to be taken seriously. Right. By, art. Uh, by Capital critics. A art. Um, and that obviously is trying to mirror what, you know, what we've seen for decades in uh, film. You know, the idea that certain movies are, you know, Oscar bait or they are aiming for awards and serious consideration as art. And to that end, we had, just this past fall of a new movie from Martin Scorsese, which ended up on Netflix, uh, the, the Irishman, which actually is about a union in a, in a way it is, um, in a way about the, uh, the teamsters in the mid middle of the 20th century and Jimmy Hoffa and the events leading to his death. But, um, Rich, I, you, you saw it, right? I did. Yes. Uh, it's, it's not necessarily a movie about the, bottom line needs of a union and organization, but there are elements of that to that movie. I mean, so the movie more so than you might see anywhere else in Hollywood. I mean, the movie stands out because it depicts Jimmy Hoffa as actually was as someone who did nothing wrong and was actually a martyr to, uh, the, the mafia. Uh, I'm only half kidding. Um, so yeah, I mean, the Irishman is just to be a little more serious is it's more character study of, yeah. you know, the, these, deeply deeply disturbed men and it's, it's the, the, not a documentary right the iris the way they irresponsibly wield power and the emotional impact that has on them um but what it does depict is this kind of moment in time where uh unions in america mattered and i think that's what's interesting about it to me like jimmy hoffa and the teamsters they had an office and he could see congress from it and and people knew who jimmy pe- hoffa people was. knew who jimmy hoffa was people knew the teamsters mattered because it was the largest union in the country uh, because of the grandmaster contract, they could determine basically what goods went where. And so they could have a real impact on uh, an industrial organization in the United States. And that's kind of the tragedy of, of Teamsters and Hoffa is because uh, rather than using that power for good, you know, Hoffa kind of let the union not kind of did let the union get really mobbed up, used it for criminal criminal ends. Um, you know, you could always justify it. Uh, is you know building power and case by case but at the end of the day really just you know let the union get destroyed by uh, the kennedys and uh you know the the kind of organized forces of capital but this is this is something that we come back to a few times on the show this idea that you know not not that long ago unions mattered in this country unions yeah. had visible power they had visible influence in a way that isn't the case today you, you could yeah, it, it, that's what's so interesting about it is it could pre- it presents a complicated picture of unions uh, as a just a, a force in society uh, that is just impossible today because you know, frankly they're just not the same level of force. Who can name the head of Teamsters anymore? It's Jimmy Hoff. It's, it's Jimmy Hoffman Jr. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but like generally yeah. speaking, people don't know that uh, yeah. unless you know you come from a Teamsters family like I do. Uh, you know, you can't name the head. Who, who's the head of the AFL CIO? Oh, um, it's Richard Trumka, but you know, again, who who would know who that the, is? Yeah, only the people in, only the people the in this room, yeah, yeah would know who that is. He's on the radio sometimes. Yeah. He gets on with all these different, you know. Well, I wouldn't call them left wing, but they're def- they're Democrats, and he gets on the radio with them a lot and does interviews. But you know that that doesn't mean he's a household name like Jimmy Hoffa. Sure, <laughs> even to this day, Jimmy Hoffa has a resonance. It's not for good reasons. No, it's because of ultimately what the Irishman is about is how he died. Well, there's, I mean, I think it's somewhat telling that like Jimmy Hoffa's fame in the modern day is through this mob angle, right. through this, you know, is he buried under giant stadium? <laughs> yeah. You know, the fact that he's legends, a dead guy, you know, <laughs> rather than necessarily what he or the union did while he was alive. Right. And, you know, the, it, it's what's so, you know, fascinating about the story is, you know, what a mixed bag it is. You know, he did build substantial power for his members. Teamsters who served under Hoffa loved him. They, so it reminds me a little bit, you know, and 
you know, you feel free to come punch me for making the comparison of uh, how voters like Trump, despite his, uh, his obvious, obvious flaws and obvious corruption. Like, you know, yeah, he might be corrupt. Yeah, he's got his hand in his kitty, but I'm bringing home a fatter paycheck because he's of him. For me. He's corrupt for me. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I think that, you know, I mean, if you if you look at the charisma of certain, you know, leaders, there's a reason why they kind of rose up. They have a mystique to them and it would be idiotic for us to ignore that and pretend that, oh, he's such an unscrupulous character. How could anybody like him? Well, people people like these kind of guys. They they feel they feel that power when they're next to them. There's an attractive quality to standing next to a charismatic figure and knowing that you're one of the gang, you know? Now, I talked about how this vision of Hoffa is almost separate from his union organizing, which is, you know, what he did. Is there a reason why, you know, these depictions are so divorced from the material reality? You know, it's not sexy, I don't think, to say, you know, to to uh, depict the inner workings of, um, you know, act- for instance, actual police work or actual, you know, politics or actual union building. I, I think that, yeah, you could probably make a show around it, but a lot of the time it's going to be it's going to be a niche and, thing. Yeah, it's going to be very niche because, you know, when I think about anything that has to do with unions on TV, it's usually just one episode where all the weird workers go on strike and, you know, we decided to join a union, but then it just got it panned out that uh, that, that went away. There was, the union never... Everything's episodic on yeah. TV and especially on the sh- sorts of shows we've been discussing. Right, yeah. The, the strike has to be resolved by the end of the episode because the next episode they have to do something zany. They, they the, can't the format doesn't yeah. lend itself maybe to tackling serious issues right. in 72-point air quotes. But. And, 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 you know, I think he actually here's an interesting example of how who controls the levers also controls the culture. Right. Because strikes are inherently dramatic. Like there are people, there's a conflict built in. It's workers versus bosses. We've spent several episodes talking about the violent conflicts of of strikes just in American history. You could make movies about like the railroad strike, the Flint sit-in. They'd all be fascinating. Like even if, you know, they're flawed as they inevitably would be in the depiction, they'd be great movies just because of that built-in drama, but they don't get made. But but don't we need another war movie? (laughs) Yeah. Hilarious. No, we need another superhero movie. Let's. Let's make it a gimmick. Film the strike, but it's a one shot, like nineteen seventeen. So the camera goes in and out of the Flint sit down and shows everything, and uh, maybe that'll get some some Oscar bait. Nineteen seventeen, but it's about <laughs> Russia. <laughs> okay. I'd watch that. That sounds yeah. awesome. Well, th- you know, I think that a lot of times uh, these won't get cleared because you know studio execs think about their union, you know, issues that they have with unions and how it's a fight, and they don't want people. I, I hate to be that person and be like, oh, they don't want people to wake up, but they don't. It's, there's an inherent danger to reminding people that with enough uh, with enough bodies, you can stop the machines. You can stop the 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 the, the, the capitalist machine from functioning. <laughs> I, I think there's a, a broader ideology, especially of some of the shows we've talked about, of this idea that change isn't really possible, or that if it right. is possible, it's achieved only through institutions i i talked a bit about um the amazon show bosch in the last segment and there's a, a character or a uh, a running subplot of these uh, anti-police activists these activists black lives matter is if not referenced by name it is very obviously what this group is meant to represent uh-huh. and they come to find that they need to work from within the organization in order to make real change happen. Ridiculous, and it's yeah. not as easy as it looks from the outside. Right. You know, it, I, I don't think it's necessarily a coincidence that so many shows end up with that being the moral and the lesson taken away. I, I remember the episode of King of the Hill where they had a certain amount of people working in the propane office with them and thus they were – um, able to push for some workers' rights, essentially, by, you know, claiming that, okay, this size of workspace under this law, you know, with this many people, 
you got to have uh, certain rights for the disabled, for people with different kinds of needs. And then it started immediately snowballing into, well, we have to have the lights low because of so-and-so's eyes, and then this person has a back problem, so they get These to lay down at work. These sorts of concerns it's, are often portrayed as frivolous. Yeah, frivolous, and and I think that Mike Judge they failed up, us in that episode. They, but. they end up as the butt of the joke instead of, you know. Exactly, when in fact a lot of times, you know, the reason why you need a union is because you're busting your butt, and it, it's, it's in a dangerous condition, and basically a lot of times people are – they're fed up and they they have no other recourse but to band together and decide we're not going to do this anymore. And yeah, as, as I remember that episode too, that it was very much presented as like like you said, frivolous, but also like oh, they're taking advantage, right? Like uh, they're, they're just being lazy now because they can be, rather than you know asserting their very legitimate complaints and you know trying to insist on their rights being allowed. There's a certain sort of show, uh, you know, you think of like Aaron Sorkin's role in uh, writing a whole lot of political television uh, that would come to the, you know, to the extent that they would cover these issues. They would say, ah, but aren't both sides the problem? Here? No, <laughs> there, oh, there needs sides. to be a meeting in the middle. No, every time you meet in the middle, you're capitulating to the right. Sorry. I. I watched The West Wing and for the life of me, I can't think of a, like a union leader ever having a presence on it. And this was ostensibly a Democratic administration. That's insane. If you think about that show, it's it's always, oh, well, there's some middle of the road answer when the truth is everyone's bought. OK, you're not going to be able to uh, you know argue your way out of anything. So you just have to understand that it's a fantasy that someone's going to wake up and see your side when they're being paid not to. There's a another point to be made that like a lot of uh, TV writers and of course Hollywood writers are liberal and yet this is still the sort of uh, media we get. You know, this is we're still treated to um, television and movies that don't really tackle the issues of working class people with any real weight to them. It's Which, almost as if liberals are not our allies. Yeah, it's almost as if they capitulate with you know the right. <laughs> Um, I, 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 it should be noted they're very wealthy liberals. Yeah, true. I mean, this is all about class. And you think about who filters the media that you're actually watching. It's so rare to see something where you actually agree with, you know, whatever the. It's rare for me anyway to see things that I, I agree quote unquote with on television on you know a fundamental basis because I do see a lot of this sort of poor shaming, worker shaming. This idea that, you know, everything is a meritocracy when it truthfully is not. So if you're going to, if you're going to tip the scale, strive towards, right. If, I mean, if you're going to tip the scale so that zero, you know, basically you start off as everybody's really even. So if something goes wrong in your life, you are a failure. Then that's, I mean, that's the message that you get on TV pretty much constantly. And think, think about how famously competitive and cutthroat. Hollywood is, mm-hmm. you know, I, I can imagine these writers having to tell themselves the story about a meritocracy. Otherwise, they'd be forced to admit that they didn't earn their jobs. They don't deserve to be there. And their heads would crack and crack in two. Yeah, exactly. And these are union writers. And these are union writers. But, uh, uh, you know, it, it just goes to show there's a there's a spectrum of union experiences as the Irishman does a nice job of depicting. And, um, you know, they're not complicated as all things. I did end up calling into a place and talking to this guy called Hale Sparks. He's like a lib, you know, and he's doing a radio show slash, you know, broadcast. And he kept saying, I'm in a union, I'm in a union. And I'm like, well, your experience with unions seems to be different because you're in the Screenwriters Guild. And I'm sorry, is that, am I getting that right? No, Screen no, Actors no. Guild, sorry. No. Screen Actors Guild. And so people who have, you know, been on TV shows and are in that are getting a different treatment than people who are, you know, trying to get $15 an hour for working at McDonald's. It's it's nobody's coming up to those ladies and and mainly they are ladies and women of color especially and saying, you know, um, we should treat you like gold because you, you could give us an opportunity someday. Because that's basically what it is. It's a bunch of backslapping. And that, that's actually an interesting point about those those Hollywood unions is that in order to get into them, you need to have get a job. But to get a job, you need to be in the union. So there's kind of this like circular logic where just breaking in is the first real difficult battle. Um, and that really is where uh, I think, uh, you know, kind of nepotism and, uh, you know, the, the phony meritocracy comes to play. I mean, isn't that kind of like what we were talking about with the police? Right. I mean, they've got a union. 
And you guys have gone over that and how that's different than actually having. So, I mean, in a way, I don't see Hollywood as anything more than another gatekeeper Mm -hmm. for a lot of this stuff because they're feeding us propaganda that, you know, that always makes us feel like we are, you know, uh, wrong for wanting change and we should only work within the system. It's a false narrative and it's a it's a defeating message. Right. It's a narcotizing narrative. It's, you know, sit back. Things are bad now, but you know, don't worry. Good, good people are working on it. They're 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 in the institutions right now. You know, trying to make things a little bit better for you. Uh, we've just about run run out of uh, television to discuss. So for this week, I'm Ryan. <laughs> I'm Rich, and I'm Anita. This was punching out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.